Welcome to Crime on Caffeine. I'm your host, Erica. And I'm your host, Allison. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode. Today we be sipping on Fabula Coffee. Guys, I'm really excited about this one because it's low acid coffee. And you can ask Erica, your girl has got some major acid reflex issues. <laughs> this was honestly a perfect find. It was fabula. It was fabula. <laughs> it was a fabula find. <laughs> no, but for real, I have such bad acid reflux. And, you know, they say that the coffee doesn't help, but I'm not gonna stop drinking it. Definitely doesn't help, but how does this feel? This feels better. I feel fabula. <laughs> <laughs> I got the light roast. Um, it's pretty good. It's pretty sweet. It's got red apple, which is different. Um, brown sugar, sweet almonds, baked apple, and sweet berries are the aromas. But red apple, sugary, sweet, mixed nuts, and cocoa are the flavors. So, And of course, I got the dark roast because your girl likes it like that. And the flavors in mine are caramelized sugars, bittersweet chocolate, and they say it's round and smooth. <laughs> Ooh, I love round flavor. I was just about to say round and smooth like my big old body. <laughs> <laughs> if you guys have any recommendations for some coffee we can try, if you know something different, like last time we tried with a little less caffeine. This time we're trying with less acid. So if you guys have any recommendations, that would be cool because, you know, we're trying to do better this year. We're broadening our horizons. Yeah. Um, so if you do have any suggestions, hit us up on social media. Everything is at Crime on Caffeine, or you can send us an email, crimeoncaffeine at gmail.com. Or if you just really want to ruin our lives and send us like the most caffeinated coffees you've ever found in your life, we'll also try that. Yeah, we don't care. We'll try it all. <laughs> we do it for you guys. We do it for the people. Also, let us know if you guys have tried any of the coffees that we've tried on the show. I'm curious to know if anyone has like gotten anything because we've told them to and I want to know what you guys think. So I feel like every time we tell you guys to tell us something or answer a question nobody does <laughs> exactly maybe maybe we'll start posting it on our stories yeah we'll ask you the questions on the stories so you have to follow us at crime on caffeine i hope everybody had a good valentine's day um, yeah i know that was this week the super bowl too hope everybody enjoyed i have a little case that I guess you could relate to Valentine's Day if you really want to reach. That's why I picked it. I'm a little nervous. Um, I am going to be talking to you guys today about the dating game killer. <gasps> I've heard of this one, I think. Yeah. Oh, I'm excited. I don't think I've ever really like dove into that one. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one. He's a messed up dude. Um, no. <laughs> yeah, shocking, I know. Before we get into the case, I want to give a congratulations to the Los Angeles Rams on their Super Bowl win. But most importantly, on Super Bowl Sunday, my best friend in the entire world gave birth to a baby. Yay. And my life is 
over. I'm ruined forever. He's the most perfect thing I've ever seen in my life. So congrats to my best friend Morgan and her husband Mason on their new baby. And now we can get into scary stuff. Congratulations. (laughs) So exciting. So cute. So let's dive in. Let's. Send this to your Valentine and have them listen. <laughs> I know we had a wonderful Valentine's Day together. Please listen this to reminded this reminded me guy. of you. <laughs> Please listen to this guy murder people. <laughs> and no. go on a game show. Okay. Rodrigo Jacques Alcala Bucor. He was born on August 23rd, 1943 in San Antonio, Texas. His parents were Raul Alcala Bucor and... Anna Maria Gutierrez. When Rodney was eight years old, his father moved the family back to Mexico. His parents were from there, and I think his grandma was, like, sick, and she wanted to spend her final years back in Mexico. So they were there, but three years later, so Rodney was, like, 11 years old, he abandoned them, said bye. Well, I don't even think he said bye. I think he just left. And so his mother decided to move Rodney and his siblings to Los Angeles. He had two sisters and a brother. One sister was younger, and then the brother and the other sister sister were both older than him. So a lot of kids. They moved to L.A. after this. And then in 1960, he was 17 years old, and he joined the Army, and he was working there as a clerk. So about like a year or two into his role with the Army, his father died unexpectedly. He served for a total of about four years before having what was reported as a nervous breakdown, and then he was discharged on medical grounds after a psychiatrist diagnosed him with antisocial personality disorder. So we are already seeing a lot of characteristics that might lead to someone committing very violent crimes, being abandoned by his father, And then his father dying, um, being in the military, getting discharged, um, and diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder, which is just a huge thing in itself. But after this, he enrolled at UCLA, and he earned his Bachelor of Fine Arts in 1968. So he was, like, really, really smart. He had an IQ of at least 135. He was a really smart dude. So the same year was the year of Rodney's first known violent crime. On September 28, 1968, he lured eight-year-old Tali Shapiro into his Hollywood apartment. Luckily, someone saw this happen like a neighbor saw and called the police and like memorized his plates and everything. And when police arrived, he answered the door and was like, yeah, hold on, give me a second. And then they opened the door, found Shapiro alive, luckily, but she'd been raped and beaten with a steel bar and he had fled. He literally left the state and went to New York. He enrolled at NYU under the name John Berger, and this was spelled B-E-R-G-E-R. Important, because he'll use a couple different aliases. But interestingly enough, he studied under Roman Polanski and studied filmmaking under him. He's like a super famous film producer, director, everything. He was married to Sharon Tate when she was murdered by Charles Manson, and he had several sexual assault cases against him with very young uh, girls. So they definitely had a few things in common, unfortunately. Um, But Tali's family ended up leaving the country and going to Mexico because they were so scared that the person who'd attacked her was just roaming free and they were just scared he would come back and try and finish the job or something like that. So they literally left the country. But he also got a job in 1971 as a children's camp counselor using 
a different John Berger. It was actually spelled B-U-R-G-E-R. So he's got three different names so far. In June of the same year, 23-year-old Cornelia Crilly was found raped and strangled in her apartment in Manhattan. So that was him, but this didn't end up getting solved until 2011. And two of his campers, so he was counselor for like three years at an arts camp for little girls. Probably not the best place for him. But two of the campers noticed his resemblance to a sketch on an FBI poster. It was a composite drawn up of him in regards to the Tally Shapiro rape and beating. And so How they reported old were his campers. They were like little kids. I want to say under 15. Okay. So they reported this to the directors and Alcala was arrested and sent back to California. Like I mentioned before, the Shapiro family moved to Mexico. So Tali was actually unable to testify against him for rape and attempted murder. And because there was no primary witness, they had no way to convict him. And so he ended up pleading guilty to a lesser charge of assault. And so he was sentenced to one year to life. Which, like, what is I that ring? Never. I've never heard that in my life. One year to life. We just Um, can't decide. (laughs) But they had an indeterminate sentencing program. So because of this, he was released after just 34 months. So what this program was basically was just parole boards instead of a judge were able to decide if prisoners were able to be released based on like if they'd been rehabilitated. And Rodney Alcala was one of those people who was just super charming and could just lie and manipulate anyone. So you can assume it was probably pretty easy for him to convince these random people who had never met him and didn't look at his case the way a judge would, that he would be able to convince him that he was different, he was changed, he was a good guy, you know. So he was able to get out on parole, but not even two months go by before he's at it again. And he returns to prison for violating parole by providing marijuana to a 13-year-old girl. Um, she told police that he kidnapped her, but he wasn't charged with this, and he was paroled again after serving about two years. For some strange reason, (laughs) his parole officer told him that he was allowed to go to NYC, even though he should not have been allowed to travel. He said that he needed to go visit some relatives, so he was like, yeah, sure. He goes to New York. He starts to pursue a hobby in photography. He's working under his John Berger, B-U-R-G-E-R alias. And it's believed that during this time, around July, that he murdered 23-year-old Ellen Jane Hoover. Her remains were found almost a year later. And this was a super high-profile case just because her father owned the really famous nightclub in Hollywood called Ciro's. And she was also the goddaughter of both Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr., But when she disappeared a week after he'd arrived in Manhattan, police had no suspects, and obviously they weren't able to solve this for decades. So, Um, Also in 1977, 28-year-old Christine Thornton went missing, and her body wasn't found until 1982 and wasn't even connected to Alcala until 2015. So he returns to L.A., and despite his criminal record, he uses literally his real name, and is hired by the LA Times as a typesetter. You're kidding. And this is when, yeah, yeah. Like, hello. How, hello? You could literally Google his background and it would have come up. I mean, I don't. His photography hobby was starting to go a different route than it would for most people. He would use it to lure young boys and girls back to his house, would manipulate them into posing nude, and some would ultimately become his victims, unfortunately. 
In November of 1977, Alcala raped, sodomized, and murdered 18-year-old Jill Barkham, a young woman who'd just moved to LA from New York. He smashed her face in with a rock and strangled the victim with her belt and the leg of her pants. He left her body in the mountains, and she was discovered the same month, and he actually posed her body with her knees to her chest, and like her, I think her face was to the ground for investigators to find, um, and Oof. she had three... Yeah, she had three bite marks on her breast. So it's oh. definitely giving a little bit of Ted Bundy, I would say. Yes, I was just thinking that. They they have a lot of similarities, and you'll notice that throughout this entire case. Um, I think they definitely have a lot of similar aspects when it comes to their mental health. So it kind of makes sense. But in the same month, police were able to piece a few things together regarding the disappearance of Ellen Hoover in New York back in July. That's the girl that her dad owns a nightclub, and she was the goddaughter of Dean Martin and Sammy Davis Jr. So she was last seen with a photographer named John Berger. And the FBI was actually able to connect this alias to Alcala. So they ended up bringing him in for questioning. She was still considered a missing person at this point because they hadn't found her body yet. So they really had no evidence. So Alcala was released from their custody because they couldn't connect him whatsoever. But her body was eventually found in June of the following year in an area where she'd last been spotted with him. Obviously using that alias, but there's your connection. But it wasn't until the following year. So a month after this, so this was December of 77, Alcala did pretty much the same exact thing to 27-year-old Giorgio Wixted. This time he used a hammer instead of a rock, and he sexually abused her with the hammer and smashed her face in as well. He strangled her with stockings afterward and left her body posed in her Malibu apartment. She was found by police on December 16th. These are like very angry murders. Uh, yeah, he does something really interesting, um, which we'll definitely talk about, but he, what he would do was he would strangle them so that they were like unconscious and like at the brink of death only to keep them alive, sexually assault them again, and then kill them. So it was like he wanted to have that power and control over them, having the power over when they die, having the power to like have them in a position where they can't do anything to defend themselves so that he could sexually assault them. It was really, really yeah. messed up. Very sadistic. Absolutely. In March, he was sent back to jail for a short period of time due to marijuana. Um, so he did have a bit of substance abuse issues, as you can see, and that's definitely a characteristic of someone with antisocial personality disorder. Interestingly enough, he was also questioned by investigators working to solve the Hillside Strangler murders, which is like... Y'all were so close. So Shut close. Up. It's so, that was so crazy to me to think about. No, he didn't do those, but he's doing some others. He's, oh, that's so annoying. In June of 1978, Alcala murdered 32-year-old Charlotte Lamb. She was found in the laundry room of her apartment complex that same month, posed face up with her hands behind her back. She'd been sexually assaulted and strangled with a shoelace, and she wasn't identified until the following September. Also in September, I don't know how he found time in his schedule, but this is when he appears as Bachelor Number One on The Dating Game, a TV show where a bachelorette would ask questions to some mystery bachelors that she couldn't see. And afterwards, the bachelorette would go on a date that was 
fully funded by the show. Um, this ran from like the 60s to like mid 80s. And thanks to Alcala's charm, he won and he was selected by the episode's bachelorette. Um, her name was Cheryl Bradshaw. Thank God. Luckily, after the taping of the show, Cheryl went to talk to him and she said that she got super weird vibes from him and he offered to take her on a, a date for them to go take tennis lessons and she declined it and she was super uncomfortable with it. She went up to the show's producers and she was like, I can't do this. And they were like, totally understandable. It's totally fine. And interestingly enough, one of the executive producers, I want to say Mike Metzger, he was like pushing to not have Alcala on the show even because he got weird vibes from him too. Like he did not want him on there at all, but they still went through with it. So that should have been a red flag. Yeah. Yeah. So thank God that they didn't like force her to go with him or anything. Like it's a good thing. They were really cool about it. In February of 1979, Alcala offered a ride to 15-year-old Monique Hoyt, who was hitchhiking. He told her he wanted to take her pictures for a contest, so they spent the night together before he drove her to a secluded area, took nude photos of her, and raped her. She gained his trust by being super friendly to him and, like, obeying everything he said. When he went to the bathroom at a gas station, she was able to escape, and she picked him out from a lineup, and he was arrested. So this was supposed to go to trial, but it doesn't go to trial for a very long time because she was deemed unfit to stand trial and she was sent away for a psych eval. For Which is what? so crazy because I'm like, I wonder what she did or like what she, like he needed to be. I was just about to say, is got the wrong the guy. number what that he's been arrested for s- the same things? And they're just like, oh, that girl needs a psych yeah. eval. Couldn't be his fault. So insane but we'll hear more about her later. So in April, he actually gave his two weeks notice with the LA Times. And then in June, he broke into the apartment of 21-year-old Jill Parenteau and he beats and strangles her to death. He posed her body, propping her up on pillows. He actually cut himself as he came in through the window and a sample of his blood was connected at the scene. So that's good. We're making some moves here. A week later, Alcala approached 12-year-old Robin Samso and her friend Bridget Wilvert asked if they would pose for him. They posed for a few photos before a neighbor intervened and asked if the girls were okay. Thank God. Love you. Samso fled, unaware that she was being watched by Alcala. So later that day, she left her house and rode her bike to an afternoon dance class, only to be kidnapped and murdered by Alcala. And get this. This, oh, this is insane. So, a firefighter named Dana Krappa, she saw him dragging her body to the woods, but decided not to say anything. For what reason should we not say anything? I don't know. Shock. Maybe she didn't know what she was seeing. I have no idea. Who cares? You're a firefighter. You know better. So, while they searched for Robin during the last week in June, a composite sketch was broadcasted resembling Alcala. So, he decided to chemically straighten his hair to disguise himself. But this didn't work because his curls kept growing back, so he just, like, chopped off all his hair. And the woman who saw him drag Robin's body, Dana Krappa, returned to the woods on June 25th and found Robin's remains. And she still wasn't totally sure, like, are these human remains? Are these animal remains? I don't know. There's some remains here. I saw a guy dragging a body to the woods. You can probably put two and two together. She did not. And she still didn't say anything. What? I'm so annoyed. Like, at that point, just just call. Because you don't know what they are. They could be animal remains. Great. 
They weren't. Alcala's parole officer saw the sketch of the suspect and immediately called to tell them to look into him. He was also selected from a lineup by witnesses that saw him with Robin Samso that day. So they're definitely starting to close in on him. So now it's June 29th. The firefighter Dana Crappa returns to the scene where Robin's remains are to see if they're truly human remains and not animal remains. And this day she was actually there with a fellow firefighter. They were doing like some kind of work in this area. He thought they were deer bones or something and he jokingly threw one at her and she was visibly upset and he like didn't understand why. He didn't know what was going on. She still didn't report anything. Didn't I'm say gonna anything to kill him. this Nothing. woman. <laughs> Figure figuratively. Luckily, a few days later, that co-worker that she was with returned to that scene to do some work still, discovered all of the remains, and he decided to report them. Because at that point, he was like, okay, clearly this wasn't just like one random deer bone. There's a whole set of human-ass remains here. So thank God for William. Love him. Great guy. But after this, Alcala decided to rent a storage unit in Seattle, Washington, and put all of his photographs in there, his souvenirs, everything that would connect him to any kind of crime was in there. On July 24th, Huntington Beach Police Department detectives show up to his home with a warrant to search his home and vehicle. With the evidence found, he was booked on the suspicion of murder of Robin Samso, and bail was set at $250,000. Here's where he messed up. While in jail, his sister visited him, and he made the mistake of asking her to clear out his storage unit in Seattle. Obviously, people heard this or were listening, so police were able to beat her to it, discovered over 1,700 photographs, discovered all of his souvenirs, including a pair of earrings identified by Robin Samso's mother as having belonged to Robin, which finally connected him to her murder. And they had the body. So his arraignment was two days later on July 28th, 1979. He pled not guilty to kidnapping, lewd or lascivious act upon a child under 14, murder, and robbery. He was held without bail, and the judge allowed for his other crimes to be allowed as evidence in this trial. Um, Opening statements began in March of 1980. The key witness for the prosecution was none other than Dana Crappa, the firefighter that kept all that stuff to herself. Like, at least she's helping now, I guess. (laughs) But she testified that she saw him transporting her body to the woods, and she also said that she saw him return the following evening. Um, She was cross-examined hard regarding her decision to keep the events to herself, so that definitely did not help them. An inmate named Michael Herrera also testified, um, speaking on a conversation he had with Alcala, where Alcala gave details about Samso's death, and another inmate testified as well, saying that he'd heard the conversation. So this really helped them because Alcala gave them details about how he kidnapped her and murdered her. And this is important because in California, with the death penalty laws, if a kidnapping and a murder occur together, the defendant is automatically eligible for the death penalty. So that this was like the only kind of proof that they had that a kidnapping occurred was the the testimony from these two inmates. And in April, the defense tried to get the kidnapping charge dropped, claiming that there was no proof of this and that their word wasn't enough. Obviously, they were doing this because they didn't want him to get the death penalty. The defense witnesses consisted of Alcala's family members who all tried to provide an alibi saying that like there's no way he could have been there the night of the murder or whatever, literally perjured themselves. I don't get it. 
as well as another inmate who said that those two inmates lied, which is not good. And a few people who tried to discredit Krappa, which, I mean, she kind of screwed herself. Like, you're not very <laughs> credible since you kept all the information to yourself. But on April 30th, 1980, the jury found Akhel guilty. Um, he was found guilty on charges of first-degree murder with the use of a deadly weapon and forced kidnapping. He was given the death penalty a week later and was sentenced to death on June 20th, 1980. On July 11th, 1980, he was charged with burglary and the sexual assault and murder of Jill Parenteau. This ended up being dismissed the following year because the only witness was discredited. In September, he's convicted of the rape of Monique Hoyt and sentenced to nine years. This is the girl that was supposed to stand trial, but they sent her away for psyche vow. He's convicted of that, sentenced to nine years. Obviously, it's just like on top of his sentencing. In February of 81, he actually filed an appeal to overturn his death penalty conviction. They actually had a case because, like I said, there's a possibility that those inmates might have made false testimonies. And their testimonies were the only ones that held any proof that he'd kidnapped Robin Samso. And without them, he wouldn't have kidnapping and murder charges tied together, meaning no longer a case for death penalty. So they deemed their testimonies as having been truthful, and Alcala is sent back to death row in late May of 1981. It was taken to the Supreme Court, though, who ultimately overturned his sentence, and he was granted a new trial, which began at the end of April, almost a year since his first sentencing. At the end of May, he was found guilty of murder, false imprisonment, and the kidnapping of Robin Samso, opening the door for another death sentence. Other victims of his testified, and on June 20th, 1986, he was sentenced to death for the second time. But, in 2001, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals overturned the conviction, and he was granted a third Jesus. trial. Jesus. In the years between 2003 and 2005, he ended up being charged with the other murders of Georgia Wickstead, Jillian Barcom, and Charlotte Lamb, thanks to DNA that connected him to the scene of all of those crimes. And the judge decided to just try him for all five murders at once. So the trial began in January of 2010, and he decided to represent himself. Smart. Isn't this similarities between him and Ted Bundy are kind of crazy? Say, it's very like copycat but basically at the same time so can't really be <laughs> obviously antisocial personality disorder and that charm and that manipulation and obviously they were both very narcissistic mm -hmm. so they had it in their heads that they could represent exactly. themselves and you know they aren't thinking they can represent themselves because they went to law school and studied the law and they were lawyers it was just because they could use their charm and you know all of that to manipulate into hopefully not receiving the death sentence. I don't know if he thought maybe he was just going to get off completely. Who knows? But Dumb. just so crazy. Um, unfortunately for Alcala, the prosecution's case against him was pretty rock solid. So thanks to the DNA evidence and the patterns that they were able to establish, you know, such as um, how he posed all of his victims, how he kept trophies, and his MO where – how we talked about before, he would bring his victims to the brink of death by strangulation, only to keep them alive so he could rape them again and strangle them again until he killed them. And, I mean, he truly was a monster just in the way that he did this and forced them to relive this nightmare multiple times before their death. He questioned himself for over five hours and <laughs> going back and forth with himself, he would use like a lower voice when he was the attorney and, and like his, like insane, so insane. Just, it's just a joke. And 
It's so upsetting because like here we are over 30 years later. That's how long these families had to wait to receive justice. And I cannot imagine how hard this was at all for them to be sitting there going through this for the third time for this dude to keep getting off, for him to be sitting there for five hours questioning himself. It's just a slap in the face. Like all these families want is justice. Like this is a 12-year-old girl we're Mm -hmm. talking about here. And Robin Samso's mother was actually called to the stand by Alcala and had to face him with questioning. And she said it was one of the hardest things she'd ever had to do in her life, which I, oh my God, I can't even imagine. But Tally Shapiro, that first victim, that eight-year-old girl that he raped, who luckily made it out alive, their family moved to Mexico. She actually made an appearance at this trial. Um, At this time, she was in her 50s, but she spoke about her trauma and like everything she experienced over 40 years ago. She said that she couldn't like really remember what had happened that day in her head, but it affected her and traumatized her that her entire life. She said that for the first time ever, Alcala showed, quote, remorse by apologizing. She said he's never apologized before and for him to even bother, I mean, that made me sick to my stomach, which because obviously he just did this to try and avoid the death penalty. Yeah. He has antisocial personality disorder. He is a sociopath. During this trial, he was diagnosed with psychopathy. He has no remorse. He does not care what he had done. He is not sorry. He has no sympathy, empathy, nothing. Like, he's literally just doing this so that he can get what he wants. On February 25th, 2010, he was found guilty of all five counts of capital murder, one count of kidnapping, and four counts of rape. So during the penalty phase, this is when they try and decide if he should get the death penalty. I don't know if he thought this would help his case, but he decided to play a song during his closing argument called Alice's Restaurant by Arlo Guthrie. He played a song? Yeah, wait till you hear it. So Guts and veins in my teeth. Eat dead, burnt bodies. I mean, kill. 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 And I started jumping up and down, yelling, kill. Kill. And it started jumping up and down with me, and we was both jumping up and down, yelling, kill. Kill. And the sergeant came over, pinned the metal on the seven down the hall, said, you're our boy. I want to kill. I want to kill. I want to see blood and gore and guts and veins in my teeth. Eat dead, burnt bodies. I mean, kill, 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 kill. And he thought this was a good idea. Why? I could not begin to tell you. I'm so confused. But he was sentenced to death. (laughs) No. Shocking. (laughs) And immediately after this, detectives decided to release the less gory and not sexual photos of the victims to the public. I think out of the 1,700 photos, they were only able to release like 100, but they needed to figure out who these other people were. And to this day, it's believed that he's killed up to 130 people because they still can't figure out who the people are in these photos. In 2012, he was indicted for the murders of Cornelia Crilly and Ellen Jane Hoover. Instead of going through another trial, though, he just pleaded guilty to both and received a sentence of 25 to life. After the photos were released, people began to submit their DNA to help find their loved ones, including Kathy Thornton, the sister of Christine Ruth Thornton, which was one of Alcala's victims, and he was indicted for this murder in 2016. 
He has been linked or, like, is suspected to be linked to other murders in California, Washington, New York, New Hampshire, and Arizona. Not really sure when he went to, like, New Hampshire or Arizona, but that's really interesting. But he ended up just dying of natural causes last July at the age of 77. So we can talk a bit about the psychology. I know we've touched on quite a few things already, like him being diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder when he was in the military. This was not long after his father, who had abandoned him when he was a child, had died. Um, His abandonment at a young age may have made it really difficult for Alcala to form relationships and trust other people, which are huge characteristics of antisocial personality disorder. People with this disorder will lie and charm and manipulate others to get what they want. They break laws. They have no regard for others or any remorse for their actions that hurt other people. So this was definitely apparent in Rodney Alcala. And obviously, you know, he wasn't like abused or anything like that when he was young. But losing his father definitely took a toll on him and made it really hard for him to form any relationships whatsoever. He had like a couple girlfriends here and there. During the trial, psychiatrists had conflicting diagnoses, but he was diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, borderline personality disorder, psychopathy, and sexual sadism. Narcissistic personality disorder is definitely very apparent in him from his MO, knowing that in his head, like, oh, I can bring them this close to death, but keep them alive just for a second so that I can take advantage of them again and then kill them. That is narcissism. Him going on a fucking dating show in the middle of all this. Narcissism. Him representing himself at trial. Narcissism. So many signs of it are so apparent. And it's just interesting how it goes along with antisocial personality disorder so much. And the same is true for Ted Bundy. But the desire for power and control was so evident in his M.O., He would choose young male and female victims that he would easily be able to overpower and manipulate, you know, getting them to take photos for him and just putting them in these super uncomfortable situations. Like they were easily so scared of him. It was like an older man who wouldn't be. And then, you know, the having that power and control of being able to bring them to the brink of death just to violate them before killing them. Um, The same goes for posing his victims and taking photos of them. This provided further sexual gratification for them, for him as well. And then keeping those photos as souvenirs for him. Like I said, he was so confident in himself. He went on national television and manipulated contestants and viewers across the nation. Same with representing himself at trial. So just everything around his MO and his nature as a human being was all around like needing power and control. And just probably because of what little power and control he had in his life. I mean, his dad leaving him, he had no control over that. Moving to LA, going to the military only to be discharged, had no control over anything in his life. And this gave him a way to have control. I promise there are other ways. Going to therapy probably would have been a better option for him. But, you know, he chose to find power and control other ways. Therapy medication, being locked away in a psychiatric ward. <laughs> all, all would have been better options for him, but he is gone and thank the Lord that his victims finally got justice. It's truly so terrible that it took it so long for them, but I hope as years go on and you know, technology progresses that they're able to connect more DNA. I think it it just comes along with missing family members submitting their DNA. 
but very, very wild. Yeah, very similar to Ted Bundy. Obviously, they had different trauma, um, but just the way that their brains are wired. Well, thank you for uh, for that bright and early. Yeah, if you guys didn't have like a Valentine, here's your little Valentine's Day treat. <laughs> here's your treat. <laughs> Send it to your Valentine. Tell them, this just made me think of you. Thank you guys so much for listening, though. Probably going to take a step back from murders <laughs> for a minute. Maybe go back to the unsolved. I'm feeling... Like I stepped out of my comfort zone for long enough. If you guys have case recommendations for me, let me know because I have ideas for what I want to do, but I don't really know when I want to do them. So if there's anything that you guys want to hear, let me know. Yeah, same. Like if you have a serial killer you want me to cover or a murder, I'm down with it. Make sure you guys are following us on Spotify and subscribed on Apple Podcasts so you know the second we release new episodes. And if you haven't left us a review or a rating, go ahead and do that. We would really appreciate it. You guys don't even know how much it helps us. Like, it helps us so much. It's why we were able to chart so high in Slovenia. <laughs> we're trying to chart high in the United States. Um, so please, we'd really appreciate it. Send the show to your friends and family, share it on your stories. Like word of mouth is so helpful, the most powerful thing. And you guys have been amazing sharing everything and showing your support. So we really appreciate you guys. And thank you guys so much. We are about to hit 13,000 downloads and that is just wild in and of itself. So as Erica said, just keep listening, keep telling people about it and we will continue to make episodes for all of you to listen to. We hope you had a fabulous Valentine's Day, a fabulous Super Bowl and a fabulous week. So... Yeah, and enjoy if you guys get a long weekend this weekend. Enjoy. Even if you don't enjoy. Even if you don't enjoy. Just enjoy. (laughs) (laughs) No, even if you don't have a long weekend, enjoy your weekend. (laughs) I have not had enough coffee this morning. No, me either. (laughs) Well, in that case, since I'm losing my damn mind... You keep listening and we will catch you on the next one.